What should your law firm do to deal with these upstart, non-traditional legal service providers? If I was a law firm, I would go out and learn what these vendors are doing and ask yourself, what can we do and what should they be doing, and try to put together the best package for your clients. I'm Reg Davis, an assistant managing editor at the ABA Journal and editor of our Paradigm Shift series, which discusses how today's economic and technological climate is changing the future of the legal profession. This month, the series continues with Who's Eating Law Firm's Lunch, a look at non-traditional legal service providers. These businesses are not only getting dollars usually paid to law firms, but are changing how some law schools are educating their students and how graduates of those schools are finding success outside the law office. I will be speaking with one of the principal authors of the series, Professor William Henderson. Bill is director of the Center on the Global Legal Profession at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law, where he is the Val Nolan Faculty Fellow. We'll begin our interview right after this. This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next. Folder sharing on Westlaw Next enables you to tap into previous research across organizational boundaries like never before, saving you time from reinventing the wheel. Learn more at westlawnext.com. Have you noticed any kind of trends in what non-traditional legal service firms are doing, uh, what, what areas they're going into, or what kinds of things they're maybe challenging traditional law firms on? Yeah, uh, you know, Reg, there's 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 really several buckets, and I'm I'm actively involved in trying to figure out how to bucket or categorize these firms. But I think that the the one that that most people can get their heads around is if we just take the type of work that was created through the onset of electronically stored information, and we know that sometime probably in the 1990s it became impractical to have electronically stored information and, and, and discovery done by high-paid law firm associates. And so that work started to migrate uh, toward contract uh, attorneys, and it gave rise to a whole fairly lucrative contract attorney business. And lots of companies that are still in place basically came into being and grew pretty dramatically as a result of the contract attorney business. Uh, that slowly migrated to legal process outsourcing that was overseas oriented and, and that and some of that work started to filter off and go to India and the uh, Philippines and lots of pretty successful lawyers quit their practices and especially if they had Indian connections and they began to set up these uh, legal process outsourcing that was organized around discovery. Now the third leg, uh, the third what I call maybe a 3.0 at least in the litigation context would be uh, predictive coding, where, where the machines are, are actually beginning to do some of this work better than humans can, and, and, and they're only going to get better. And related to that, some of the work that was going offshore that still needs human involvement is being brought back on uh, onshore. And so you see a movement toward onshore primarily because proximity aids in the process improvement, and a lot of the original movement through through the runs through this entire theme is just cheaper labor what some economists might call labor arbitrage uh, the work can be done competently by lower priced labor elsewhere and so let's take advantage of that cost savings now we're seeing a, a pretty clear movement toward process design where that's the real innovation uh, that's taking place the real cost saving that's occurring actually it's not only is it saving money but it's 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 increasing cycle time uh, you know speed of delivery and it's increasing quality so you we're, we're, we're kind of hitting on better cheaper and faster with the process improvement taking place now that, give me a, a little more definition of what you're saying as as far as process improvement or process design 
Yeah, what it, what it, what it means is it, it's laying out all the tasks that need to be done and uh, trying to uh, order them and sequence them in a way that reduces errors and reduces redundancies. Actually, redundancies are the opportunity for uh, errors. And then finding the people that, that can best do that work and creating a checklist-type process that, that has them make sure that they do the work very efficiently and error-free or as error-free as possible. So I'll give you a, an example. There's a company out there, and so, uh, we can talk legal vendors if you want, called, I want to make sure I get this right here, Lawyer Partner. I may be getting that wrong. Uh, but they process mapped all of litigation into, I think it's it's close to 1,800 steps, and it's a pricing tool. But the real innovation is the process mapping to break things down into discrete tasks. That's the first step in reordering the process and making it more uh, efficient. Novus Law, which we did, which is featured in the uh, story, is the best example I've seen of, of using process to redesign uh, a, a task like electronic discovery. Okay. So we were talking about uh, some of the onshoring of this work that used to go offshore, and uh, everybody used to talk about it as outsourcing, and now you're talking about it as onsourcing. Uh, how are these things affecting both the uh, non-traditional firms as well as the traditional firms? Well, it's an opportunity for the non-traditional uh, firms, and, and now um, I, I just used the terminology recently. I called uh, an LPO a 1.0 LPO, which meant that it was kind of the first wave to go to India. Uh, the 2.0 is the ones that are using uh, process, and, uh, and they're really popping up in a lot of different places, and they're, and they're, and they're growing, and, uh, and so they seem to be hiring. Uh, they're growing pretty vibrantly. There's a lot of proliferation in that in that space. Uh, some law firms are beginning to specialize or create specialty units that compete with the LPOs and the predictive coding uh, folks, and they have fairly sophisticated tools that they're buying from software uh, vendors. And so some firms are trying to compete because they want to hang on to that work. And uh, um, there's some law firms, I won't name names here, that have created – facilities in uh, kind of rural parts of the country, definitely outside the major metropolitan areas, to set up kind of a, a captive legal workforce uh, that specializes in this process of improving their wages are lower, but you know, they're high-paid jobs in that part of the country and get a pretty good quality of life because the process makes the job predictable. So it's an opportunity for big law just as much as it is for the, uh, the upstarts, but the bottom line is it's, the work's going to go to whoever can do it best. Right, and I was going to ask you, as far as traditional law firms, what should they do with uh, about these? You mentioned that uh, some firms are actually creating competitors. Is there uh, a general rule, or would it be best for, say, big law firms to uh, either cooperate with these non-traditional firms and uh, and use their services since they are, we're supposed to believe, cheaper than what the firms can do themselves, or should they just try to buy these guys up, or should they create their own competitors? Well, that's really good questions here. I want to make sure that uh, make clear that these vendors, although it started in electronic discovery and things related to to uh, litigation, there's companies that are doing document automa automation, and they're you know, uh, and, it, and it's used to be kind of decision tree things like just say. Um, that maybe what uh, TurboTax might have done uh, a couple of decades uh, ago. But actually there's companies now that take all contracts from the Edgar database and use inductive statistics to basically produce market standards. I mean, that's a, that's a big data use in the transactional context. 
uh, vendors that are doing that. And then there's other companies that are using data from the uh, federal court system to predict case outcomes, like an IP. So there's a proliferation of different companies that are using technology and big data and process to try and do traditional legal work, traditionally done by law firms, better, cheaper, or, or faster. So if I'm a law firm and this is eating away at some of the bundled services that I've traditionally offered, I have to ask myself, can I really do this better than these upstart companies? Or is it better to develop strategic alliances and to basically piece together a, a, a kind of a rebundled uh, service where the, the law firm is acting as a general contractor and it knows the best vendor in e-discovery. It knows the best vendor to come up with market standard transactional documents. It knows the vendor to help price high-end IP uh, cases. And that, that there's a tranche of, of trusted advisor, advisory or, or advocacy work that the law firms are, are going to keep. But in the meantime, they're putting together the whole kind of quarterback in the whole transaction or the whole litigation matter. There's an opportunity for law firms to do that, but if they steer clear of these vendors and they and they and they try and keep the work in-house using uh, inefficient methods, then they're really kind of telling their clients when their clients find out that that they really have their economic interest above their clients' best interest, and I think that that'll come back to harm them long term. So. If I was a law firm, I would go out and learn what these vendors are doing and ask yourself, what can we do and what should they be doing, and try to put together the best package for your clients. As we said in the, this most recent story, at least one firm, uh, Aiken Gump, did cooperate with Novus Law, and uh, partially because the client themselves insisted that uh, there be some work together and that they actually cause a reduction in fees. So I guess uh, we're we're beginning to just beginning to see that start happening at pretty high level, am I right? And that's absolutely true. It's a it's a good outcome for Aiken Gump because they're holding on to the work and they're learning how to work uh, effectively with a world class uh, document review provider. And so and I think it leads to a better outcome for the client. And so it's cementing the client relationship. Well, the article kind of has three parts to it, as I recall, since I edited it. One part is dealing with these new firms, and one part is dealing with the law schools that are providing attorneys to work at these new firms. And the third part is the students themselves. So I was wondering uh, if you had people who are considering law school asking you, you know, where should I go, what should I do in order to hook into this non-traditional legal services uh, part of the legal business, what would you advise them to do? Uh, I would advise them to uh, get a great traditional legal education, but at the same time, moonlight and learn an area about, say, law and technology, law and process, uh, some sort of a kind of a new-edged angle to uh, the legal market, something where, something where they have uh, some intrinsic interest or passion and moonlight and learn that and invest in themselves and become a specialist in that area. One guy uh, comes to mind uh, that uh, is probably uh, the granddaddy of this this sector, is a guy named uh, uh, Kingsley Martin, who uh, founded a company called, uh, well, it's now called KM Standards. It used to be called uh, Kayak, and it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a document automation uh, company that's trying to standardize specific kinds of documents and specific clauses for specific types of transactions. And he recalls wanting to uh, uh, seeing the same transactions occurring over and over again during the 1980s when he was working for a large law firm. 
And he said, wouldn't it be great to standardize this and instead of doing a one-to-one lawyer model, do a one-to-many? And so he started learning C++ C and BASIC, uh, which are computer languages, and uh, started programming, uh, doing it two or three hours a day as kind of a hobby, and started programming his own stuff for his clients, and then it led him uh, to basically be one of the founders of of an industry that's just about to, I think it's probably going to hit its tipping point in the next year or uh, or two. Um, I hear quite a few stories of people that just kind of pull on a string that they find interesting. So, uh, But the students aren't going to find an employer that's going to equip them with all the skills that they need to uh to prosper in this area they're going to have to they're going to have to invest in their own personal human capital and so go out and moonlight and go out and and uh work for free go out and uh, shadow somebody that's in this interesting sector that you find interesting and invest in yourself learn something about it and uh you know and when you see an opportunity leap at it uh i have one last question as we're going to wrap this up uh we've talked about uh, the Great Reset or uh, the New Normal or what's going on in the legal profession. I'm just wondering, considering the four stories we've already uh, looked at, you got any idea about where we go on the next one? What's what's the next subject that we need to tackle? Well, uh, I think that a really interesting topic would be if you really pull these trends apart, you find out that uh, they look new to us, but their their seedlings are 10, 15, 20 25 years old, and I think that uh, it's really it's the it's our own kind of mental frames that are getting broken now, and so when we talk about the Great Reset, we we think the economy is resetting. What's really resetting is our perceptions of the economy, and we're coming up with a new schema to view a reality that's just changing every day incrementally, and and so we have to come up with a new vocabulary and a new way of describing the world we're working in. And so uh, I think uh, it would be really worthwhile to think how lawyers adapt to change and how the first step is always denial and then, you know, who kind of flips first and who flips last and what the consequences are of that. I think that uh, lawyers grappling with the fact that, you know, even in a big law firm, I think some big law firms are going to do just fine in the years to come, how they make money is going to be different. So there's going to be a lot of discomfort even within organizations that are that make the the switch to this new uh, frame or new reality. So um, uh, I think studying lawyers struggling with this new reality is going to be what we should be focusing on, just our coping with change. Okay. That, that would be interesting to focus on. Thank you, Bill, for taking the time to speak with us. This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, powered by WestSearch, the world's most advanced legal search engine delivering the best results in seconds. Learn more at westlawnext.com.